Welcome to Free and Figuring It Out, a weekly podcast hosted by two Brits, Sherelle Griffith and Verity Brown, on a mission to support, empower and reassure fellow independent millennial women that they can be self-sufficient, successful and seen. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Free and Figuring It Out. We are delighted to be joined by Lisa Conway Hughes today. Lisa Conway Hughes is a chartered financial advisor with over 15 years experience and a fellow of the Personal Finance Society, which is the highest qualification a financial advisor can hold and less than 2% of PFS members have reached this. Lisa blogs and writes as Miss Lolly. She's also the author of Money Lessons and hosts the Ladies Finance Club podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, you are here today to talk all about saving and mortgages. So this is part of our money series in May. So if you are just listening for the first time, there is a whole range of podcasts around money. So please do check out the other ones. But today we're going to be talking all about saving and mortgages, which is one of the things I love. I am a self-proclaimed saver. So I'm very excited to see what Lisa has in store for us. So just to kick off, if someone is absolutely new to the world of saving, they don't have a single penny in their bank, what are the reasons why we should be saving and how could people get started? Well, I think if, if the pandemic, with a good thing that's going to come out of the pandemic could be how we've all thought a bit more about our money in the last year and how life can um, sometimes throw a few curveballs. So I think having savings in the bank is the foundation really of any financial plan, no matter whether you've got loads of money or no money. Um, and the reason is it offers you that security, it's there for an emergency, but unless you've got savings in the bank, it's just not a sensible idea to start investing. So it's probably the first stepping stone of actually doing some financial planning. Okay, that's that's interesting because I was going to ask about um, sort of savings investing and, you know, which comes first and, and things because me and Sherelle have very different money stories so I'm a spender <laughs> even though we've been told not to say that haven't we um I so I'm going to ask you from a very novice sort of, of point of view so so say um you know someone is listening and and they you know like you've just said they've realized that it is important that they start to take control which is where I'm at at the minute I've, I've started to to look into savings really seriously um Obviously, at the minute, that's just going in a bank account, just being chucked in there, just because I don't know what else to do with it. So what advice do you have for women who are like, okay, this is getting to be something that I'm really dedicated to now. Um, Where else other than my bank can I start saving? Or maybe what options with the bank are there to start saving other than just having spare in the current account? Um. Well, I think, well, first of all, um, everyone is always surprised to hear, but I also am a spender. I love shopping. <laughs> and so I've had, to, I've had to learn the tricks to play those mind games with myself so that I become a saver without actually trying, if that makes sense. Okay. So the first thing is you've got to save every month by direct debit. Now, if you are a spender, there's going to be so much temptation to take that money out. So I put that money out of sight, out of mind. So having it in your current account might not necessarily be the worst thing to be doing right now because interest rates everywhere are so terrible. But from a temptation point of view, it's probably the worst. So what I do is I want, I want to put it in a savings account where I don't even know the past 
iceberg without having to really hunt for it. And so for me right now, I use premium bonds. So what you want to do is ideally you want to find the best savings rate. If you're, if you're, if you're starting by doing um, monthly direct debits into something, then you probably want to look for something like a regular savings account. Mm -hmm. um, um, although this is recorded in, in April, at the moment, the very best um, regular savings account that you can get um, is with Coventry. Um, Coventry Building Society and it's regular saver four that we're on right now. And they'll give you 1.3% um, on your money and you can put as much as £500 a month away. So for most people, that's all you're going to need. Um, if you have got more to save than that, then I use premium bonds as well. So premium bonds are, it's like a lottery really. So um, you can get a quick, um, I don't know, a gambling hit at the same time if you like. But what happens is you put your money in, um, the tickets are drawn like in the regular lottery some people will win 25 quid, some people will win 50 quid, some people win a thousand, but the carrot is that every month two people will win a million pounds each. And all the things that you win are tax free, but the majority of people won't win anything. And then your tickets get rolled over into the next month and the next month and the next month. So the worst thing that can happen is that you never ever win. And therefore all you have is the money that you put in. But right now, given that the best savings rates for a regular account are 0.4%, you're not really giving up a huge amount by using premium bonds. So I also use premium bonds because I like the fact that the winnings are tax-free. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned about premium bonds because I have gone premium bond crazy since Yay. we went into lockdown. <laughs> because, yeah, I did have a savings account literally, I think, the week or two after we went into lockdown, the rate went through the floor. So I thought, well, this is pointless. And I wasn't going to my like Sainsbury's and buying a lottery ticket on my lunch anymore. So I thought, well, there you go. Let me get my little hit. And so I absolutely agree with you. That sort of, oh, I might win um, is exciting. And when I won. Have you won? I have won. Actually, this month I won £125. I got my email Ooh. yesterday. <laughs> I did win this month. <laughs> But the thing, so so a funny little story that our listeners will know, but I actually worked in the premium bond call centre for a small part of my life. So it's really funny that I've seen, and I've seen all these, you know, accounts with so much money in, and, and it was really inspiring to know that it's a great way of saving because your money is so safe, isn't it? Um, okay, so that's, that's a really kind of good sort of place to, to put the money. When it comes to... Um, saving with the bank so you obviously mentioned Coventry there so obviously I don't have a, a bank account with Coventry do I open up a savings account with Coventry or do you have to then move your current account with them how does that aspect work so the, re the, the good thing about Coventry is you don't have to bank with them to get the deal so you okay. can just open one of their regular saver accounts online um, there are better interest rates out there so you can get as high as three percent but only on a really small amount of money usually about 50 pounds a month if you bank with the likes of um, First Direct, First Direct, Royal Bank of Scotland, and, and I can't remember the third, it'll come to me. Right, no yeah. Okay, so, so you can with Coventry, yeah, just go there. Okay, that's interesting, good to know. And I think it's nice that you just mentioned, there are a few other bank accounts that you can get better interest with, but usually it's, it is for quite small amounts. And I have definitely been one of those people in the past that used to play the whole 
I would look every six months or every year and move everything around. And I remember having all the direct debits so that £50 would go in and out and like trying to follow all the rules. Um, but it does feel a little bit like it, it can become like you are chasing it and really what what extra are you getting? Like you, the amount of time you spend doing it in the end, because they only let you put a little bit of money in that interest rate, actually a lot of your money might sit there and not get the benefit from it. But it's really useful to everyone to be aware of all the options but what I really liked was you mentioned a little while ago about the best way to try and start saving is to direct debit it straight away like automate it and I think that's something that I really believe in I I think for, even if you are a saver I still think the best thing you can do is get paid and get it gone so it's just not there because all of us are going to be tempted when we see money sitting in our current account and by moving it out of sight, out of mind, I, that definitely has been what has helped me to save and was a major part of how I saved enough to get my mortgage was, I just wasn't there. So when I got tempted, it, it wasn't in my bank account mm. for me to spend. I think it also helps to build that dialogue with you internally that I am a saver, mm-hmm. even though it's happened without, your, without you doing anything, it, it builds that positive mindset about becoming a saver and being a saver as well. Yeah, and just on that psychological element, how what's your approach when it comes to saving, as in saving for something or just saving generally? I think that's an area as sort of a new saver. I'm like putting money over here for something, but it's not got a label, you know, and I know other people like, okay, this is for a house, this is for a car, this is for a holiday. Uh, have do you have you seen any techniques that work better or uh, do you use anything yourself yeah I think every you've got to have a plan because otherwise you could be saving for the wrong reason and and in in the wrong thing so everyone needs three to six months worth of cash full stop that's your emergency cash buffer Um, but you don't want to have too much cash because cash is eroded by inflation so inflation is the cost of things going up every year and the government has a target to keep inflation around 2%. So we're probably at the minute around one, one and a half-ish percent. But savings rates, the best savings rates out there are, are regularly between zero and 0.4%. So money in the bank isn't beating inflation. So you don't want to have too much. Cash isn't king right now. Mm-hmm. But you do, need, you do need to have that um, emergency cash buffer to be there as your safety net if anything goes wrong. Plus, as I said earlier, having that safety net is there because let's say stock markets are falling. Let's say it was this time last year and you've got a, um, an emergency, the roof leaks, the car crashes. Well, well probably you crashed a car, but, <laughs> but you crashed a car. Um, you don't want to be having to be forced to take money out of your investments as they're falling. So you, yeah. that's where the emergency cash buffer is there for. And then when the markets have recovered in your investments, you take money out of the investments and you top up your emergency cash buffer that way. Um, but then you do need cash for things that are going to happen in the next three to five years. So if you're thinking about buying a house in the next two years, you need a pot that is cash labelled house deposit. Um, you don't want to risk that money by investing it because you just don't have the time to wait for the markets to go down and then come back up, up again. It could be an emotional roller coaster, put it that way. So <laughs> I think you need a plan. So your short-term plan, if you're not saving something specific, is just get that cash buffer. Then you want to focus on your pension planning, and then you focus on your medium-term investment planning. And if anyone's got a goal to answer that question, I, I like to think of it as, if you imagine a rectangle, 
you can either have that rectangle so it's um, on the bottom it's got the long way along and, and not very high and if that's the case your savings goal it's not going to be very painful but you're going to have to save for a really really long period of time and the longer we make that savings goal the more likely we are to lose interest well especially me I'm very likely to lose interest which is why when I do anything I'm a sort of person of extremes so I have to make that triangle that rectangle the other way so it's a lot of pain for a short period of time is much more motivating to me. So for example, when I save for my first house deposit, every single penny that I earned from my day job went into my savings account. And to live and to enjoy myself, I worked in a pub in the evenings. Now that's not gonna be something that you wanna do forever because it just exhausts you. But for a year, it was completely fine. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Inspirational. <laughs> well, I think that's definitely, I think that's really interesting in terms of your personality. And like you said, for you, you knew actually that level of pain, but being able to save um, that volume of money and just be like, I can just deal with this for a short amount of time works. Whereas, yeah, I imagine, I don't know. I, don't, I think I'm definitely someone that has my rectangle probably a bit more on the, the, on the long side. Um, yeah but I think but I think it's a good like in my head like trying to picture it and maybe people are different for different goals like I, you know I know people who have managed to save up for the house in a very short time but then some people have taken them years and I think everyone is different but having that awareness like you had to know mm-hmm. for short-term focus let's just go for it it's going to be painful but then you get the reward the bigger reward quicker so that makes sense definitely yeah Oh, exciting. So um, in terms of things like ICES, leases, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this to you with a screwed up face because I don't really understand them. I tried to open up a help to buy and I ha- already had an ISA open. So they wouldn't let me open it, even though I transferred the money and it all got very confusing. And then I immediately shut down as someone who doesn't understand these things. And I'm sure there's women listening who feel the same. So what are they? Are they any good? Should we be thinking about them? Or is are we in an economic state at the minute that isn't really lending to them? You know, isn't it's not the so, best thing. So if we walk, think, if you ignore the jargon for a moment, if you start at the basics, when you save, you get interest. When you invest, hopefully you get growth. Um, interest is very predictable, i.e. it'll be half a percent a year. Growth on an investment is variable. It depends on what the stock market's doing. Now, when you make either set investment, so when you either make um, interest or you make growth, the government wants their slice of the pie. They want to tax you on it. So to protect yourself from that tax, you can put either those savings or those investments in an ISA. And there are loads of types of ISAs, but all the ISA is doing, it's like a tax shield. So the money that's in there is tax-free. Now, you're, the government doesn't want to just give you loads of tax-free money because they, they, especially at the moment, need the DOSH. So they only allow you to pay in total into an ISA £20,000. Now, you could choose whether to have a, a cash ISA, a stocks and shares ISA, or a LISA as well. Uh, um, the lifetime ISA is there for people who are thinking about retiring, uh, about saving for retirement, or your house, but we'll go to that in a second. Now, naturally, as individuals, ICE is sort of put in this box of, I know it's good, but I don't really know why. Now, when you put that ISA around cash, you're not really protecting a lot because you're not getting very much interest. 
But also you could argue that we no longer need to use the ISA for our cash because everybody has something called the personal savings allowance now. And the personal savings allowance is an individual allowance that you have of the amount of interest you can make every single year. So as a basic rate taxpayer, which is somebody earning just a little bit less than £50,000 a year, you're allowed £1,000 a year in interest before you pay any tax. High rate taxpayers, so those earning between 50 and 150, are allowed 500,000, sorry, 500 pounds a year, and those earning 150 or more aren't allowed one. So for most people, you don't need to have an ISA for your cash anymore because they're completely protected by the personal savings allowance. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, you're allowed to make a thousand pounds in interest, but your savings rate's only giving you half a percent. You have 200,000 pounds in cash before you're going to pay tax anyway. So and banks have cottoned on to this. It really winds me up every weekend when I look at the money rates because you'll see that the same bank offers a higher interest rate for a non-cash ISA than it does for its cash ISA rate, just by a 0.1% or something, but it's the principle. People will naturally go to the ISA with a lower rate because they know ISAs are good but can't remember why. So mm -hmm. we need to focus our ISA allowance on the things where we, that we actually need to protect from tax. And that is your um, investments, because hopefully your investments are going to go up more than your cash. So what a LISA is, is it's, it, it's an ISA in that it protects you, but it, the government will also give you a bonus. Now, it's only going to give that bonus to people who leave the money in there for retirement until you're age 60, or you use that money to buy your very first home. And if you, you can't use it to buy your second property up the ladder or third property, you can't, definitely can't use it to buy a holiday home. <laughs> it has to be your first, first home that you buy. Um, and you have to be less than 40 to open an account. So I'm 40 next month. So I'm just going to open a LISA with 50 quid. I don't necessarily want to use the LISA, but I'm going to open it just because um, it's there and rules may change in the future. Okay. Okay, that's that's good to know. So, uh, so I'm nearly thirty five. So, I, you know, but I could open a LISA, start just putting money in it, and then that could because I don't own property, that could be for my my first home or retirement. But it, it could be for use for both. Yeah, exactly. And th okay. so the benefit of the LISA is when you pay in, the government's going to give you a twenty five percent bonus um, right. when the money goes in, and they'll give you up to four thousand pounds a year as you pay in. So that's the carrot for your, um, for, for your house deposit or for your retirement. Now, the thing to remember though, is if you're using it for your retirement, you need to remember, well, what level of tax do I pay? So bear, bear with me, don't be one um, to all listeners because this could get a teeny bit complicated, but when you understand this, this will be a light bulb moment. Everything will click into place. So when you pay in, if, if you remember, I just said basic rate taxpayers earn less than pay less than 20% if you earn less than 50,000. If you earn above 50,000, you pay 40% tax. So let's say I'm earning 60,000 pounds a year. I'll pay 20% tax on 50,000. And then I'll pay, well, not quite, but up to 50,000 earnings. And then I'll pay 40% tax on those 10,000 that I've earned above the 50. Now, if I decide to put that 10,000 into a pension rather than earn it, 
the government's going to give me all that 40% tax that I've paid on that money back. However, if, if I'm a 20% taxpayer, so let's say I'm earning £30,000 a year and I decide to put £10,000 into my pension rather than pay it to myself, that 10000 goes in, but the government's only going to give me 20% tax relief because that's the 20% that I've paid. So with, an, with a LIFA, if I'm using it for retirement, when I'm a basic rate taxpayer, paying into a LIFA or a pension is exactly the same. You get the same tax relief. If you're a 40% taxpayer, a pension is going to be much better for me because with a pension, I get 40% tax relief. But with the, um, with the LIFA, I'm only getting the equivalent of 20% tax relief. Okay, that does make sense. Yeah. Can I explain one thing that most yeah. people don't get? And this, maybe you edit it out if it just is one step too complicated. But when the LISA gives you a 25, if you think why the LISA has given me a 25% bonus, but you're, you've just said I'm only getting 20% tax relief, how does that work out? And most people don't understand the math behind that. But again, I think it's another light bulb moment that it's really important to understand. So let's say, um, I, for, if I earn £100 as a basic rate taxpayer, I pay 20% tax. That means I walk away with £80. Mm-hmm. 20% go, £20 goes to tax man, 80%, £80 comes to me. Now, if I put that £80 into um, my LISA, the government's going to give me a 25% bonus. A 25% bonus of 80 is 20. It puts you back to your 100. <laughs> and then you get back to your 100. So I've had 20% taxes, but they've given me a 25% bonus. Like it's weird. It's just, but it's the same thing. Yeah. No, I that, get that, that off does... my chest. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's good because again, as you know, me and Sherelle have spoke about this as women and money. It's, you know, when we come from very different points of view, me and Sherelle, but it, it's, it's a scary world out there and it's complex and I wouldn't feel comfortable going to a bank manager if I'm honest and saying can you explain all these different I mean I didn't I called it Elise and not Elisa I mean it's just like but you know it's just that that's the world we live in so it's great to have someone you know go through those things and I think it's really important and, and then yeah. hopefully someone will hear it and pass that on and and so on I so. think though that when like what we've got to get over is that people in the financial world are in some kind of position of authority. Like mm. I really think that our industry is built on jargon and that jargon is there to make us look really clever. Um, but if there's something you don't understand, you've got to just say, but I don't understand that, what do you mean? And it's our job as an industry to make people feel comfortable rather than you to not make yourself not feel stupid, if you see what I mean. It does make sense. And, and so your bank manager probably doesn't know half the stuff they should know. <laughs> um, honestly, honestly. Mm. Um, so have that confidence to say to the bank manager, I don't really understand what you mean. Can you explain it to me? And if they can't explain it properly in, in a language that you can understand, that's their fault for not explaining it properly rather than your fault for not understanding it. And it's the same when we think about pension companies. Like if you want to know, understand your pension and you ring up your pension company or your, your we talk about savings, your savings account, you don't understand how the interest is working. You need to be, feel confident to ask those questions in a really simple way. And it can just be, I'm sorry, I don't understand. What does that mean? 
And you're paying your bank or your pension company by being a customer. They're there to serve you. And I think that relationship needs to be turned on its head. They need to offer you, they need to offer you a banking or an investment experience that is relatable to you. Mm. Yeah. No, I... We I, need to change yeah. the industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start today. Um, no, I completely get that. And I think it comes back to us women as just feeling more empowered and worthy. You know, I mean, I, I have a, a, a difficult relationship with money. So I go into a bank with my tail between my legs thinking, oh my gosh, like I'm a 35-year-old woman nearly and I don't really have much, you know, empowerment around money. It's changing, but I've got that within me and... Um, you know, it's, and, and maybe, I don't know, Sherelle, like sometimes you may feel like, you know, that again, just being a woman, it's just, it, it can feel, it, it's just a funny relationship with money, isn't it? Hey, it's Sherelle here, and I'm quickly popping in to make sure you know that this is episode three of our Figuring Money Out mini series. We've already released episode one, which is number 122, which is all about budgeting. And then episode two, which is number 123, is on debt. So if either of those two topics take your fancy, have a listen afterwards. And if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please, please do. Subscribe right now so that you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. We are so excited about creating this series because we wanted to not only get financial experts to share their best advice to help you out, but we also wanted to normalise the idea of talking about money. So if you are enjoying this episode, share it with a friend. And whilst you're sending it across to them, talk a little bit about your own experience of savings or mortgages. And as well as talking to your friends about money, we want you to talk to us too. So please come and find us. We're free and figuring it out on Instagram. You can comment on the related posts or drop us a DM. We really want to hear about your relationship with money and what the podcast has got you thinking about. Now back to the rest of the episode. I don't think there's many people's talk to like for me even as someone that I would class myself as quite like money savvy and I'm very confident with numbers so I, you know I'm happy to sit there and try and go through information it's not presented in an easy way in any way shape or form and so I absolutely appreciate that we should feel more confident to challenge people but I think there is definitely a barrier between like financial institutes and you like you feel like you can't question it and actually it spans out, way outside of saving when we've had a conversation around debt for example people not understanding what like the APR on their cards are for example it's a big reason why people get in so much debt and it's like actually having these conversations to really understand what numbers is and percentages that are flying around on a piece of paper in front of you what does that actually mean so the way you really work like explain that like a hundred pounds how that gets taxed how we get it back like visually I can really understand that and hopefully for our listeners that's really helpful however because you mentioned Lisa about financial institutes I, one thing I was as a fire round bonus question in my head that I wanted to ask is since you are the financial advisor you know there is an increasing amount of financial education which is out there in the world and I'm like really grateful for the internet and how we're going to able to have these conversations but if there is so much mystery I think around financial advisors and I think is there any anything you can say rather than it just being like in my head I was always like it's just for rich people for example is at what point should could you start having a conversation to see if you should be rather than trying to do this by yourself working with an advisor yeah I think 
find that survivors aren't scary and the ones that are are doing it on purpose to make you make themselves feel better again maybe they they're not that qualified so they're they're using all this jargon to um keep your arms length and make themselves feel better i don't know but and it doesn't need to be scary um you, you've got to find the financial advisor for you. There are financial advisors out there that will, will advise someone on sort of setting up a financial plan from scratch. Um, you've just got to be careful how they get paid because what's their motivation to take someone on who doesn't have any money? Um, so, yeah, just be careful. But I I think that, that, that so if, we talk, if we start with the layers, so the financial education that's on the internet, again, who's that coming from? Because it winds me up no end. I, as a regulated individual who, well, on my lap here, I've got a, a book thick as the Bible that I've got to learn in the next four weeks, all about um, security for my next exam. I've, and I've been studying constantly for the last 15 years. Um, but when I go on the internet, there are so many things that I am never, ever allowed to say because it would be classed as advice. Whereas I scroll through Instagram and I see hundreds of people who haven't taken a financial exam in their life giving investment advice giving savings advice um and people have just got to be so careful we see the rise of these tiktok advisors that haven't got a qualification between them so i think financial education is great but like with anything who are you actually learning it from and which is exactly why i set up the ladies finance club because that education has to come from well-qualified people who know what they're talking about and then financial advisors again my industry and i think where it's got a bad rep came out of the 1980s when it was a sales industry people literally undergoing knocking door to door selling policies to get huge commissions and then driving around in posh cars and being all flash <laughs> uh, fortunately our industry has moved on a lot then and we've professionalized ourselves but our, there are still some legacies with some firms um, out there. So the, new, the news this weekend was a financial advisor um, tripped over his own tax trick um, and is in serious bother with the inland revenue. And it's just that you've got to find someone who is well qualified, speaks your language and really explains to you clearly how they're going to make your money, how they're going to make money out of you. Um, and don't be afraid to ask that question. How will you make money? If you want to find a financial advisor, you can go on something like unbiased.co.uk. Um, and if you're starting from scratch, there'll be advisors out there who are willing to take you on from not having, uh, from, from a zero standing point. So for me, I, we've got, we're central London based. So we're naturally as advisors focused on the, the reasonably wealthy. I will take someone on from scratch, but they, they need to have a serious income an ability to save every month um, for, for me to justify that time, if you see what I mean. But not everybody would work in the same way as me. Mm. That's good to know, because I'm in a process of, um, like I've had some introductory conversations with financial advisors, because for me, I decided this year that was an area I wanted to step up into. But I think it's one of those things that I'm not from, I don't know anyone in my entire life that's ever met a financial mm. advisor. And actually I would have said, the only reason it's really funny you said like because you've got a central London firm that's the thing if I hadn't have lived in London I don't think I ever would have met a financial advisor or anyone else mm. that had it because I don't come from a network or circle of people that have that type of money but then meeting people I realize oh actually there are different ways so I just wanted to 
um, put that out Shall there. I give you a bit of a checklist of what to look out for? Oh, go on. I so, love a checklist. <laughs> the question to ask is, are they independent? Mm -hmm. um, if they're not independent, um, why, why should you be a client of someone who only has certain products to sell rather than able to go out in the market and find you the right thing? Next thing is about their qualifications. So someone could have, I think being a good advisor is a combination of good exams and good qualifications, but also good experience as well. So you want to understand the experience and the qualification. Um, you want to understand if you invest in them, are you tied in? So if someone were to invest some money um, through me, if they wanted to leave me at any time, they can leave without any penalties. Whereas some advisors will tie you in for up to six years. So you really want to understand your exit. Um, but also you want to know, well, what am I actually going to get? And what are my annual fees going to be? How often am I going to meet you? How often are you going to review my account? And hold them accountable to these things as well. Great. That's good to know. Because one of them definitely had said to me, I'd be tied in for six years. So thank you for that checklist. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was normal because I didn't know anything else. No, it's not normal. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So we've, we've, thank you for that. I think that's really interesting because it's something that is like on the list for the future for me. Um, but it's all really good to know. Um, so we've talked about savings. You've given some really good um, advice there, you know, kind of the direct debit, you know, looking at premium bonds um, really understanding those, the tax and you know, what is right for you. Um, I know that Sherelle has some questions on a side that I'm not quite ready for. <laughs> just mortgages <laughs> mortgages to me are like a totally different language so I'll let Sherelle take the lead on this but it is something that you know I need to know about because I do want to own property just feels a little far off at the minute so yeah, yeah I think, I'll let you delve into that and I think mortgages are again if you know I didn't I didn't come from a family that anyone owned um like my parents bought their houses later on in my life but so just this whole world, I didn't understand how it worked when I was going through mine. And it's only by having, I think I was probably one of the first of my friends to buy as well. So I just think actually, I know there's lots of millennials who that, that's the dream. And um, there will be plenty of our, um, people who are listening. And so I've got a few questions, I suppose, just around mortgages, um, I suppose, in general, how they work. But also, I think for people who are saving, because I think obviously we're talking, we've been talking about savings as well, is how you can be preparing because obviously you had a very drastic I set myself a goal a year I got my house but for some people it is a much more of a longer ambition um mm -hmm. especially those trying to get anywhere near London it can feel like a never-ending I'm never going to get on it so I suppose yeah like I don't really know where to start uh <laughs> I suppose if you are like I'm you in like you you were was your employee when you got your first mortgage would you, class, would, yeah. Are you, yeah, so I suppose talk about from that perspective and then I'd like to talk about for myself employees because I know there's lots of myths around that getting yeah. scary. <laughs> so the first thing I have to say is I um, can't give mortgage advice, but obviously I can give you some information. I don't, I don't do mortgages, so I'm not up to date. But as a general rule of thumb, with, um, with an employed person, you need three months pay slip um, to be able to get a mortgage typically with um, a self-employed person or if you've just set up a limited company then you're going to need two to three years worth of accounts so if you're going to make any changes in your business you're going to need to think about that between oh, when am I next going to want to remortgage in the future 
but also how is that going to impact my, my ability to buy? Typically, you can borrow four to four and a half, maximum five times your, your income. Now, most people are just so focused on the, the deposit that we forget that the other half of the um, coin, is that the right word to say? But the other half of the story is your income. So you not know, only do you have to be working on your um, deposit, you need to be working on your income because an extra £10,000 in salary is going to give you an extra forty to £50,000 ability to borrow. So that can have a really big impact as well. And then there are sort of hurdles that you need to aim for. So you can, we're starting to see now, the re-emergence back out there of 10% mortgages. So if you're buying a £100,000 property, you'd need to put 10,000 in. Um, but there's not many deals out there. And if you imagine, if you put yourself in the shoes of a lender, if you only put 10% deposit in and they're exposed to 90% debt, if you sod off and don't pay your mortgage, then they're really exposed. They've got your 10%, but property prices could go down, especially on a new build. Whereas if you put, say, in an extreme a 40% deposit, they've got a lot more security. They feel much safer if you ran away and never paid your mortgage. So that the more deposit you put in, the, the lower the interest that is that they're going to charge you. And often at the moment, I read um, in the papers a few weeks ago, the difference between, say, putting in um, a 10% deposit and putting in a 40% deposit is, is almost about 30% of the interest. So you might pay 3% on um, a 10% mortgage, but you probably be paying less than 2% if you were able to put down 40% more, um, a 40% deposit. So you've got to get that deposit right. You've also got to get your stamp duty worked out. You've got to remember all the other costs that you that do get forgotten, your stamp, your stamp duty, your solicitors, your moving costs, and the fact that when you actually move in, you might need somewhere to it so you might need somebody for furniture and things like that yeah I think that's a very important story I um when I I brought a shared ownership property in Croydon and I broke up with my boyfriend at the time of going through the buying process and the foot literally I remember being in the car crying breaking up with him and saying I'm keeping the mattress <laughs> the, thing, the one thing I knew was I was like if I don't now have anything to put in this property I want somewhere to sleep and I literally just had like a mattress for three months when I brought <laughs> priorities yeah <laughs> okay that's I didn't and and this is uh, I feel that a lot of shame around saying some of these things as a 34 year old woman but um I'm probably being quite vulnerable because I know other women probably feel the same way but I didn't know that you're I always thought that the percentage you put down um kind of that then meant how much you could then spend on a house rather than it being tied to your income so that's that's good to know and it's interesting about the self-employed but I had no idea that it was so such a long amount of time that you need you need to prove um and I understand that but um it feels um yeah like you you have to start thinking ahead don't you um with that I suppose yeah. so you really got to think ahead and especially if you're self-employed I would get a mortgage broker because those guys are just amazing that like I've never ever done my own mortgage I just use the mortgage people in my in my office um well mainly because I don't have to do the paperwork <laughs> but also when if you apply yourself you think where would I go if I didn't know what to do you'd go to your bank what you don't realize is each bank has different criteria so 
the first bank you walk into might not be the perfect match for you, but you'll only find out when they fail you and reject you. And then that's a black mark on your credit rating. So a broker is able to take a step back and say, right, what's your situation? And let me find your perfect mortgage match. And then you're more likely to get it right first time and therefore no negative effects on your credit history as well. Yeah, I okay. think it's really and important that you mention mortgage brokers because I think that they can make a massive difference. So actually when I... I so I had a shared ownership property and I staircased and when I well, I wasn't expecting to go to staircase in one go so I own 50% and if you have shared ownership you can then in 10% increments buy more and I was expecting to probably buy like another 30% um, but actually a mortgage broker was able to help me to get all of it because they managed to get someone that would give me five times my salary so I think and that's made a massive difference probably for the rest of my life and I suppose all the knock-on effects it will have so I do think mortgage brokers do have like this magical power in terms of just they can see like all the things that are out there and like and also massively time saving because if you were as an individual trying to go through that whole process it can be a lot. Yeah I, I think what well they also help you to get a bit of a mortgage plan because don't forget so everyone seems to think or is so focused on getting their first property when they get over the line they think that's the end of the story but it's not because in two years time, in three years time, in five years time, you're gonna to have to remortgage again. And so it all starts. And ideally you want a mortgage plan. So let's say you start off with a 10% deal and you think I'm on the property ladder. I know that the downside is I'm gonna pay that little bit more of an interest. Um, so I'm gonna go for two years. In two years time, could you get it to the point where you own 15% of the property? And then you get onto the better mortgage rates. And then let's say you sign yourself up for a four year deal. Can you work really hard to try to get 20% equity, then 25, then 40? Because the, each of those um, stepping stones gets you to a better deal. Um, and each, so each time you progress, you want to be trying to get yourself onto a better deal. And especially because we're in this bubble now. I can't believe I'm talking about interest rates of one and a half to three percent <laughs> being expensive. When I bought my first flat, a really good deal was 5.49%. I couldn't believe I'd got such a great deal. So this isn't going to last forever. So people buying now want to also stress test, well, what happens when interest rates go back to normal? Mm. Um, just in case, because we, we yeah, this, is, this does give me a false sense of security. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned about, like, I suppose the current great, fabulous world of interest rates we're living in. I, um, I think it, we are, really, I'm really lucky and I'm really glad it's really low. Like it's not great for savings, but it's great for the mortgage. But I think we are in a certain period of time and it's not always going to be that. And I think it's quite easy to forget that you should be looking at, yeah, if interest rates did go up, like how would you be able to continue on that journey? Because I think there were definitely horror stories of the past of when in, like my parents say like, oh, interest rates used to be this and that. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's a different world that we are living in. Yeah, in the, in the 70s, interest rates were in their teens. So for every £1,000 you borrowed, you'd be paying £17 back um, a year rather than the £2 you're paying back now, which is just ginormous. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's, I can't get my head around that. But yeah, <laughs> it's great, so we're lucky. We should be blessed as millennials with these interest rates. And, and uh, Verity, can, can I give you, um, I don't know if you, if you, um work well with negative motivation as well as positive motivation can I, can I try you <laughs> yeah. because um you, 
I really, really want you to have your property plan by 40. And the okay. reason is, if you think that property, you want to retire at a decent age. You don't want to be having to work till 70, 75 because you've still got a mortgage. So you definitely want that mortgage to clear by, let's say, 65. So if you're not on the property ladder by 40, you're going to find that paying off your mortgage by 65 is just really, really difficult. Your monthly payments are going to be really, really high. So I think your absolute goal is to get that property by the time you're 40 so you can afford to pay it back at a rate that, that won't, I suppose, hamper your, your lifestyle and mm. able to still keep having fun. Because if you don't buy it to say you're 45, you've then only got 20 years to pay it back rather than 25. So yeah. yeah, that's your goal. Thank Set your you. alarm and, on your phone. Yeah, no, I will. And uh, no, I really value that. Thank you. And it's it's a big, big thing for me uh, that I want I want to achieve. So yes, I will get a plan in place, Lisa. Don't worry. I'm on it. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> no, it's also um, a really important thing to mention because I think it it is that we you know now there's been a trend like you know, everyone used to get a 25 year mortgage, but now you know people do get 30. A lot of my friends um got 30 year mortgages and it, the or longer yeah and it's like actually like you said depending on what age you buy that it, it's how long into your life you're going to continue um mm. I, I definitely do have moments where you know I see some of my friends parents and I think like they brought in their 20 they paid it off by like 45 and they're just yeah. like Woo, I've got 20 years of just money 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 and I was like yeah it's not the quite the same for most people in our generation no it's definitely yeah. not should I show you how to work out the math Go on, so, I love a bit of math. So, so, so Moti, what, what would be your ideal purchase price? Um, well, if I'm honest, I have a dream. I'm from Blackpool originally, and I yeah. dream of, I always imagine my first property would be part investment, part livable on the promenade in Blackpool. And I'll be honest, they're super affordable. So they're like 100, 120. That's kind of the price. Okay. So let's, say, yeah. so let's say let's go let's go with the 150 because it keeps the maths round for me okay <laughs> <laughs> so you if you want to buy 150,000 let's say you're going to put in a 15 percent deposit so you're going to need 22 and a half thousand pounds um as your deposit so if we take that off the 150 it means you need a mortgage of 127 and a half so okay. the maximum you can borrow is five times, but let's just go four times. So you need to be earning £32,000 okay. to be able to afford that property as, yeah. as an ideal. So you need um, 22, do I say 22 and a half and yeah. deposit and 32000 of earnings. So your next step is then to work out, well, how long is it going to get take me to get 22000 Am I going to be a leaser and have a, a tall rectangle with lots of pain over a short period of time or I'm going to flip it on the other side but I think you can do that in a couple of years I've got faith yeah. in you no I I'm, I'm I'll admit that 22 and a half thousand makes my body freeze with horror but I also feel that knowing that is empowering because I'm in my head thinking oh maybe I need like 10 grand like I've not looked at the figures and I'm like oh maybe I need this and that the salary bit doesn't you know I'm, I'm like Sherelle I'm a, a professional marketer so I've, I've built up a good career I'm just rubbish with money right in this moment and I am improving so it's like that but it's that 22,000 pound and I think it's 
like we've just said, it's for me to look at that and be like, you're not scary. You are totally doable. And this is an investment for my future. And I just need to look at that head on, don't I really, rather than this fear. Either it's £500 a month for four years or it's £1,000 a month for two. Or it's a do a Lisa, move in with your mum and dad, get a waitressing job and you can have it in a year. I think yeah. the carrot, the carrot for you. So I'm, I'm, I'm really whipping you here financially. I don't mind. Turn into financial coaching <laughs> session. But the carrot for you is go and see those properties. Go and book an appointment with an estate agent, and and look around them, feel that property, and and tell yourself, do I want this in a year, two years, or four years? Yeah, and I'll be honest, I'm I'm much more of a Lisa vibe. Um, I'm much more <laughs> of a yeah. Let's let's make this really painful, but very quick. <laughs> And interestingly, I did, um, I did actually go and try and see one and they wanted to see evidence of the money, which was really interesting because I've never had, I've seen a few properties before when I've been in my visualization manifestation world. (laughs) And this time they were like, we need to see evidence that you have the deposit and your salary. And it knocked me a bit. So it kind of um, meant, right, well, I need to prove to them, you know, I need to start building that now rather than. But also, who are they to tell you that? I don't know if that's I know. Like, who, like, I know. Well, you say, well, I will go to another estate agent then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've heard of people doing yeah. that, but not on a house. Is it true? Not on a house. I think normally that's on like multi million pound houses they want to check. Well, this is what I thought. You know, me, maybe, I, just, I just wandered around my 3.6 million house in Nottinghamshire on the weekend. <laughs> that was me trying to get my manifest into my future home. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I don't know no, if that's, I I, I've never been asked to show those things. So, but the, I was really at, shocked. At, yeah. At least we can look on Rightmove and get really <laughs> invested, at least, into what that house looks like. And also, what's the difference between buying a shell of a place that needs doing up and someone something that's already done? Yeah, maybe I was going too low. Maybe I needed to walk around a few million pound house to get a better <laughs> vibe or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, but thank you. No, that information is really, really useful. I'm, I'm going to drop you occasional messages, Lisa, and let you know. Do, tell me your progress. <laughs> I want to see um, a picture by your front door. Yes, I will. I promise. That, that I definitely will um so much great advice Lisa um thank you um before we move on to our quick fire round questions you mentioned ladies finance club um partway through the podcast and it's something that I just would like you to explain a bit more for any women who are like okay I want to work with this woman in some capacity so can you just tell us um a bit more about what that is and you know uh, how people can reach you follow you um you know get involved with with you and the work you do yeah so I about 10 years ago I started to realize that well I think I started to feel a bit hakey from life rather than giving of from life um with that it's just giving all this great knowledge that I have to people who already had loads of money. Um, and I wanted to get this knowledge out there to people who were just starting off because essentially the earlier you get this knowledge and the earlier you give yourself a financial education, then the, the better off you're going to be in life overall. I started out as a blog, which is misslolly.com. Um, and then it became um, a mag- uh, sort of lots, lots of magazine articles. And I was the, um, the money coach not someone word what they call me oh they call me a money therapist for stylist magazine for a while um and then um 
through Penguin, I got a book deal um, for my book Money Lessons. And then I started up the podcast, which is the Ladies Finance Club podcast. And I mean, it's just insane that like, we did the podcast and I didn't think anyone would listen. Um, and we get over 30,000 unique downloads, which is just insane that so many people do want this information about money in, in a chatty, non-scary way. Um, and then with, with the lady that I do the podcast with, Molly, we decided, well, actually, I think people want more than just this. They, ne- they want the next step. And so the next step is the Ladies Finance Club. And the Ladies Finance Club is a monthly membership that you pay from as little as £35. And we bombard you with as much information as you can possibly suck up about money. The, the way it works is there's two, um, two events a month where we'll have a speaker who will come and talk to you about money and teach you about money. Um, in a very approachable way and then we have accountability sessions so yesterday lunchtime yesterday evening I was sat there on zoom waiting for people to arrive and it was just a drop-in session and we typed down what are you going to do next month and then the next month I check and if you don't turn up I know it means you probably didn't do what you said you were going to do (laughs) Um, and I think just that monthly check-in is really really invaluable to make sure people don't go off course Um, so our dream is to get well as many members as possible in the ladies finance club we're just about to launch an investing club as well a three a three-part investing session with how to do it what to look out for what does all that jargon mean um yeah that we're doing a free one um well this is go out after but we do free sessions regularly this what we're doing one in april we'll probably do one at the end of the summer as well so keep an eye out Great stuff. And we're on Instagram and Facebook and everything. So um, Instagram is the Ladies Finance Club. There's a UK version and an Australian version. So um, if you want UK advice, go to the UK one. Um, And then um, on Instagram, I'm Miss Lolly Money. Great. We will pop those in the show notes. Brilliant stuff. Right. Quick fire round. Are we ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Even though it never turns out to be quick fire, but never mind. We'll see how we go. Okay, Sherelle, over to you. What is your definition of free? Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. I can't remember who said that. Was it Milton Freeman? But um, yeah, I don't know. Freedom is, is but yeah, free. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical of free. Okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, what's your favourite thing to do on your own? Uh, read. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Sleep. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, what is your best piece of advice for millennial women? Um, don't be scared of money. You should, and, and, and no one has given you a financial education, so why should you expect to know it? Um, so it's just about learning little bit regularly and often um, and um, start as soon as you can. Right. And which resource are you always recommending to other people? Um, as a book, it would be Automatic Millionaire. I love that book. If you want to, um, if, if you're not naturally money minded, but want to put in a system so that you become a millionaire automatically. It's a great book. What's not to like about that? Um, and that, so that um, as a resource, um, well, do you know what? Do, do you know if your pension's performing well or not? And most of you, I don't even know where to start with that. Um, there's a web 
website called trustnet.com are you looking like that because you haven't got a pension well I was just I'm just smiling because I have no idea (laughs) and I know Sherelle does know (laughs) so there's um so there's a website called trustnet.com and it's a, it's a it's a website that I use loads so it's full of information but essentially if you phone up your your pension provider and say which investment am I am I in they'll give you a name and you put into google trustnet the name of your investment press go and it'll bring up a fact sheet and all you need to focus on is on that fact sheet will be a graph with two lines on it one line is you one line is the average um and if you're above average, maybe that's a sign you're on the right track. If you're below average, then maybe it's a sign you need to do something about it. But I think that's a good resource to know about. That's a really good one. And what are you still trying to figure out? Um, work-life balance. Does it exist? Mm, <laughs> what <laughs> tricky one. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one I'm sure lots of people listen to can relate to. I've actually just been reading a book, The Multi-Hyphen Method by Emma Gannon. I just thought of that yesterday. Yeah, and she talked about work-life fit, I think, rather than work-life balance. So let's see after you read that awesome. if I give you any help. <laughs> I think my problem is I really enjoy my work. So it's no it's no hardship to work till midnight and then I remember I have to sleep. Yeah. Sleep <laughs> is essential, Lisa. Sleep is essential. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. You've given so much value. I'm sure to anyone listening that has helped, um, whether you are like great saver, new to saving on the property ladder, as you, you know, you spoke about actually remortgaging. So no matter where we are, I think everyone will have found something useful. So thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Free and Figuring It Out. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the next installment. And if you want to be a superstar, please leave us a review. Or you can get in touch with us. Drop us an email at freeandfiguringitout at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.